family moved around a little bit, and in the course of that moving around, I experienced all what I would say are all three of the different styles of education as a child. I was homeschooled until fourth grade, and then in fifth grade I went into a Christian private school, and then about halfway through sixth grade we moved again, and then I was in public school for sixth grade and for the rest of the time. And then I went to a private international school in France, which is a whole different messy kettle of fish. Anyway, while I was in Christian private school, it was, a, it was something that went pretty well for me. But there was one problem, and this problem had a name, and his name was Sam. I don't remember his last name. But he, was, he wasn't a bully in the physical sense of the term, but he was, a, he, was a, he was verbally abusive. And not like abusive, abusive, but he would needle at you. He would just subtly mock and laugh in your face all the time. And it just, it, it was, it just makes you, it just made you mad. It just made you angry. And I consider myself a pretty easygoing, forgiving person. I like to think that that's true. That may or may not be true. Um, you can ask my wife about that afterwards. But one day on the basketball court at recess, I lost it, just lost it. And I, I tackled the kid and I'm, I knocked him down and I, he was going, I don't remember what he, was, what he was needling at me about again, but I'm sitting there on his chest about to punch the kid. The, the other, all of my four friends are, it was a pretty small school, so all of our friends are like gathered around and I like to think that they were cheering me on. I'm not sure that they were, but I like to think that they were. It makes me feel a little better. So I'm cocking back. They're waiting for me to punch the kid and I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't do it. And I got off him, and I, I think I yelled something at him, and that was that. But he made me so, so angry, and that still gets me riled up when I think back to it. And as we continue our series, Pray This Way, we're getting to the verse that says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And so we have to deal with this idea of forgiveness, because Jesus talks about it so much in the Gospels. And he says really hard things like, Love your enemies and forgive those who persecute you, which is still kind of mind-blowing to me. Love your enemies, forgive those who persecute you. How, what is that? Where do we even start with that? And so before we jump into that, I just want to recap where we've been in case you have, are joining us for the first time or you've been in and out over the summer. And we started with our Father in heaven, right? That's the first line, our Father in heaven. And the idea that this whole prayer is rooted in this relationship that we have with God. He's our Father. We can come to Him as His children. We can come to Him at any time, day or night. We can come to Him as whole people. We don't have to hide parts of ourselves because He's our Father. We trust Him. We're dependent on Him. It's all rooted in that. And then the week after that, we looked at how we're also praying, Father, we want Your name to be hallowed. We want Your name to be regarded as holy. We want You to be known for all of who You are, the the fullness of Your glorious character that that would be raised up and praised and glorified publicly. And then I spoke on, after that I spoke about how we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, which is a futuristic prayer. It's a prayer that one day Jesus will come back. We want him to come. We're expecting it. We hope for it, that he would come and set up his perfect reign and make everything right. But it's also a prayer for here and now, that Jesus would reign, that he would be king in our lives and in, in the church and then through the church. And last week, John talked about how we also pray, give us our daily bread. Give us what we need. Give us enough. Not too much and not too little. Give us enough. And he talked about this idea of an abundance mindset. That he always gives us enough. We don't have to fight to have enough. He gives us enough. And more than that, Jesus is enough for us spiritually. Because our spiritual hole is a lot deeper than our physical needs. 
And so Jesus fills that in a spiritual way as well. He is our bread. He's the bread of life. And so this week, we're going to look at forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And the language there in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 6 is literally forgive us our debts as we forgive those, as we forgive our debtors. So it's the language of, it's the language of owing something, right, to someone to describe the language of sin. But there's another really obvious implication, and that's that as we pray, Lord, forgive us our sins, we pray this vertical relationship with God. We're also praying as we forgive horizontally with other people. And there's the sense that the two are dependent on each other, and I'm not sure I like that. I don't know if you've noticed that before, that there's that, it's almost like, wow, I have to be forgiving other people so that God will forgive me? I'm not comfortable with that. I'd rather just God forgive me, and then we can, we can leave the other part off to the side, right? Right? Are you awake? Okay, just checking. I know the sun was shining earlier. Don't know if you got enough sunbeams to kind of wake you up and... And so there's this connection here, and it's not an easy connection, and I'm a little, it makes me a little uncomfortable. There's a tension there. And so Jesus tells us a story, as he often does, later on in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, to help, and it's, I want to look at it, because it's going to help us get a, a little more sense of what this tension is and how we live it out in our lives. And so in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a story, but you need to know the context of this is right after the disciples, he's just finished teaching the disciples about what they should do when someone sins against them. And so he says, you know, if someone sins against you, you should go and see them and you should talk to them about it. And if they repent and, you have, and you're able to reconcile, that's great, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't, you should take someone else with you. You should escalate it and bring someone else with you as a witness. And, have the whole, and do the whole process again. And if he still doesn't listen, you should take someone else. And eventually you get to the whole church, and he's giving this whole teaching. And so right after that, Peter comes up to him. And Peter, you have to know about Peter. He's a guy who, well, he has a reputation for putting his foot in his mouth and saying the first thing that comes into his head. You know anyone like that? But really, he's a guy who just wants to get it right. He's all in for Jesus. And that's admirable. And so he comes up to Jesus, and he says... So how, how many times do I actually have to forgive someone before I can, like, write them off? Like, how many times? Like, seven? And he throws out this number, seven. And there's two things you need to know about that. First, that seven is, in that world, in the ancient world, seven is the number of completion. So Peter's being generous, and he's being a little symbolic at the same time. Seven, seven times? And the other thing you need to know is that rabbinical teaching to be an upward, a morally upright Jew in good standing, obeying the law, the rabbis would teach that you needed to forget, to forgive a repeated sin up to three times. So you've got your little tally on the side, and third time, it's like, done, that relationship's gone, see ya. And so Peter's being very generous. And Jesus does what he often does, he turns it on his head, and he says, not seven times, I tell you, but 77. And it would be really easy for us to stay in Peter's mentality of, I've got my little tally here on the side, and go, okay, 77, that seems a little excessive, but okay, I mean, I'll have my little book and 69, 70, 75, 76, 77, okay, you're done, see ya, on to the next relationship. We could be in that mentality, but that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's, he's, being, he's using hyperbole, he's, he's exaggerating. It would be the equivalent of us saying, you should forgive a gazillion times. You should never not forgive. It's just that the Jews have a little more refined sense of hyperbole than we do. 
Too dry? No. (laughs) And so Jesus then goes in and he tells this parable. And he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, can be compared to a king who settles up accounts with his servants. And here's where he starts in verse 24. And here's what he says. When he began to settle... One of his servants was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Before we move on, I used to think that talents as a kid, I used to think that talents was like natural ability and that the Jews had figured out how to monetize their natural abilities into currency or something, right? That's, currency is just, it's their currency, it's dollars, it's euros. And so this man has a debt of 10,000 talents, which is the, the equivalent in our economy of 10 or 12 million dollars. And so the implication here is that not only has he accrued this massive debt, but the debt is so big that there's no way he could have accrued that debt legally. He's been embezzling. He's stealing from his boss. He's a high, he's, he's the king's, he's a, a, a well-known high court official, and he's been stealing from the king. And so he has no, he's guilty of defaulting on his debt repayment, and he's legally liable because he's been stealing the money. So he has no foot to stand on. He's completely guilty. And so the king begins to do, to go down the road of what would have normally been done, which is to sell off the servant so that, until he could repay his debt from working. And in fact, the debt was so big that he is going to sell off the whole family. And he would have been perfectly justified in pursuing that course of action. And the servant, seeing the situation, begins to beg, right? He falls on his knees. He grovels at the king's feet and pleads and begs, please don't do this. Just think of my little, my little child over here. Just think of my wife. Don't, don't do that to us, please. And he says, just give me more time. Have patience. Have patience. Which was really unrealistic because there's no way he could ever repay that debt in his lifetime. And so we have a servant here who is completely at the mercy of the king. And Jesus continues in his story in verse 27. He says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Wow. And we go, yeah, that's the kingdom of heaven. That's that's what Jesus is talking about. This is incredible. He forgave a a huge, impossible debt. And the, the, the way Jesus words this, the way that Matthew records it, is that Jesus says the king is looking on it as a bad loan. He's ignoring the embezzlement and saying, well, I actually meant to lend this money to the guy and I'm just going to cancel that. I'm going to ignore the other stuff over here. And he wipes his slate clean. Yes, that's the kingdom. But Jesus goes on. Verse 28. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So he goes out, right? He sees another, a fellow servant, who owes him a day's wages. That's 100 denarii is about a day's wages. And he says, pay up. And the guy says, I can't, right? Same situation, almost the same way. Please have patience with me, I'll pay you. And he refuses. He throws the guy into debtor's prison. And all of a sudden, we start to go, wait, hang on a second. That doesn't seem right. And we begin to suspect 
his earlier repentance. We re- begin to suspect his, his plea at the beginning with the king, whether it was genuine or not. And the story continues in verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. Oh, feels good, doesn't it? We love to see injustice corrected. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Ah, there it is. That's what Jesus is talking about. Justice, fairness. That's the kingdom. But then Jesus ends with this chilling statement. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from my heart. Ah, he's turned the, table on, the tables on us again. Because all of a sudden, as we revel in the punishment of the servant, we've unwittingly indicted ourselves because we are the servant when we refuse to forgive. We are the servant when we refuse to, to forgive. And so Jesus tells us this story Because he wants us, he wants us and Peter to understand a couple of things. The first thing that he wants us to understand is that forgiveness is actually about repentance. Right? We pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's actually about repentance. And repentance is a heart issue. Repentance is something that happens in the heart before it works itself out visibly. King David, in Psalm 51, models this for us in an incredible way. King David, if you don't know who he is, he was the greatest king of Israel in Israel's golden age. But he was also guilty of some horrific things. He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, and then he murdered her husband to cover it up. And he writes Psalm 51 in the aftermath of this whole affair. And here's what he says in verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so true repentance is not remorse. It's not regret. When we come to God in repentance and say, forgive us our sins, we're not sorry because we got caught in bad consequences. Right? If you have children or teenagers, you know what it's like to get an apology out of them and then to have the sneaking suspicion that they're actually just sorry they got caught. Right? We do that too. I'm really sorry I said that. I would have said it anyway, but I'm sorry since you brought it up. Right? We do that too. That's not repentance. That's remorse. That's regret for getting caught. True repentance is a heart thing. True repentance understands that all sin is first and foremost between you and God. Right? That's what David says. I've sinned against you and you alone. But true repentance also is at the heart of forgive us our sins for, for we, as we forgive others as they sin against us because it's in the context of the Lord's prayer of saying sin gets in the way of your kingdom come, your will be done, hallowed be your name. Sin gets in the way of those things. And so the true heart of repentance is devastated at sin because it's not allowing me to fulfill my highest priorities towards God. And so David is devastated and he models that later on. He tells us, He expresses his emotion to us, but then later on he models it and he tells us what it looks like. And he says in verses 15, sorry, verses 16 and 17, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. 
You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. True repentance is not about sacrifices and burnt offerings. It's not about coming to church and sitting listening to the preacher and singing along with the, the songs. That's not the signs of true repentance. The true sign of repentance is a broken heart, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. You ever, I mean, we all had bruises when we were kids, but did you ever, when you had a bruise and you'd kind of, you'd start pushing on it, on your arm, to see how much it hurt? And if it hurt a lot, you'd kind of like, and if you could stand it, you'd, you'd see how hard you could push it. Did anyone else do that, or is that just me? Am I weird like that? <laughs> I'm seeing blank looks looking at me. I guess I'm strange. Right, but it was tender. It was sensitive. It was broken. That's what true repentance is. When you come to God and say, Father, forgive me, the, the heart of that literally is a broken heart. It's a heart that is sensitive to God's spirit coming in and saying, that needs to change. That needs to change. There's sin here. And when he pokes, it hurts. And you feel it. As opposed to a hardened heart of stone, and he pokes it and you don't feel a thing. And I can't tell you how, how important this is, this part of the prayer, and it, that's why it's in the Lord's Prayer, because if we are going to truly hallow God's name and see his kingdom come and see his will be done, we have to get our hearts right with Christ. And if we are going to do those things, we have to have sensitive, broken hearts that are sensitive to the Spirit's leading. Because if you don't feel His finger pushing on sin in your life that changes, you're not going to hear Him telling, hey, go do this for me as well. Go talk to that person. Serve here. You're not going to hear Him. Repentance keeps our hearts soft. It keeps them broken. And we need that. And so... My question for you this morning is, how's your heart? I like questions. Questions make me think. When someone asks me a question, I start to go, how is my heart? That's my home for you this morning. How's your heart? Is it sensitive to God, to the leading of the Spirit, or is it hard? Is there silence in your relationship with Him? Does it feel stale and cold? And so as you have these cards, right, this has been the challenge all summer, is to take these cards and to put them somewhere where you're going to see them and pray through this. And so my first challenge for you as you take this card this week and pray through it would be to start to come back to God with a heart of repentance. Ask Him to break your heart for what breaks His. And if you don't know where to start, if you're going, I, I'm sure I do bad stuff, but I couldn't put my, like I, can't, like I don't specifics, like don't ask me specifics. Start with that. Take that to God and say, God, show me what needs to change. Show me my sin. That's, we sh- That's a hard prayer. That's a scary prayer because you don't know what he's going to point out. And in the long run, it will be better. But man, he might put some stuff on, he might put his finger on stuff I really don't want to change. But I would challenge you. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We have a God who forgives. He does not hold grudges. We can come to him as children and say, Daddy, I'm sorry. I want these bigger things here, but this keeps getting in the way. 
How's your heart? The second reason that Jesus tells this story, wow, sorry about that, that tells this story and wants us, what he wants to get out of it is that, that the outward proof, the outward sign of, of repentance is not, is not pleading and groveling and begging. It's not the outward stuff. I'm really good at faking repentance. I'm pretty sure you are too. And so he comes back and he shows that true repentance, actually the outward sign of true repentance, right? The inward is a repentant heart towards God. The outward sign of that true repentance is actually the ability to forgive other people. That's the tension that, we're, that I've been talking about. The ability to forgive other people is actually proof that you have truly been repentant and forgiven by God. Right? And we start to suspect that again from the story, to go back to the story of the wicked servant. When he refuses to forgive his fellow servant, we automatically go, wait. We go back to the earlier part with the king and go, hang on, didn't he understand how much he's been forgiven? How could he not forgive his fellow servant? And the reality is, is that what he had been forgiven was so impossibly huge that... What his, what, his, what his fellow servant owed him was, it was nothing. It was a trifle. So how could he not forgive? And that's why Jesus says, he comes back at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, and he says this. So let me find my verse. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Right? That's why he goes back to the, hor- the, the vertical with God. That relationship there is connected to the horizontal with other people. They depend on each other. They're linked. And he's not saying that you can earn God's forgiveness by... He's not up there with his own tally book saying, Okay, Tim has forgiven... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, good. He's got ten. He can be forgiven today. That's not, he's not... He's not saying you can earn his forgiveness by forgiving other people. He's saying that they're connected and that the proof that you are truly forgiven and have truly repented is that you will be able to forgive others. That it overflows into other relationships. True repentance breeds forgiveness. And that's ultimately a two-way street. And what I mean is that if you are experiencing, if you are in wrong relationship with God, if you're unrepentant towards him, you're going to find that you have trouble forgiving people over here. But the reverse is also true, that if you have unforgiveness in your life, chances are if you go back over here, you'll find things have grown stale and cold and hard. They're linked. They're they're inextricably linked. And the cure, the cure as always, is to go back to the cross. That's what the wicked servant needed. He needed to go back to remembering how much he had been forgiven. That's what we need to do. We need to go back to the cross in order to understand how God has forgiven us. If you struggle with going, God could never forgive me, we need to go back to the cross and see what Christ tells us about ourselves. We need to go back to the cross and see how much he's forgiven us so that we can forgive others. And Paul does that beautifully in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. 
He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That heart of true repentance remembers as we go back to the cross and we remember in what dire straits we were. That we were children of wrath, sons of disobedience, enemies of God. We were separated from Him. We were separated from our Father. We were separated from the presence of His Spirit, the life of the Spirit in us. We were separated from His infinite love. But more than that, we were dead. Destined for every kind of death that you could imagine. Physical Spiritual, eternal, cut off from God. That's who we were. And Paul goes on. And he says, but God. But God. In two words. That's the gospel right there. We were dead and God intervened. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards Christ Jesus. He gave us life. He, he not only forgave the debt, he forgave the legal stuff as well, He's given us life. He made us alive in Christ. It says we're seated in the heavenly places. Spiritually, we're already, our, our legal status spiritually is that we're already in heaven. And one day we're going to actually be there and we will know the, the glorious, immeasurable riches that he has for us in Jesus Christ. That is what we have been given. And so how could we not forgive? How could we not forgive? And there are a couple things that I want to say about how could we not forgive because it makes it seem like forgiveness is easy. But it's not easy. And the first thing is that I know I tend to forget how much I have been forgiven. It's not, I'm not always thinking, oh, Jesus died on the cross for me, that's great. That's not always at the forefront of my mind. We need to be reminded, right? We're busy with our lives. We're busy with stuff and people are cutting us off in traffic and we're hopefully not doing anything bad, and, you know, we're, we're, we're living life, and it's not always there, and so we need to be reminded, and that's why we sing together. That's what we're going to do at the end. We sing about the cross together. We take communion together. We preach about it together. We need to be reminded. You need to remind yourself. You need to preach the gospel to yourself as well, and we remind us. We, we help each other. We support each other in that. That's why we gather together. But forgiveness is hard. And I know as I say this, I, as I was working through this, I suddenly went, I'm trying to preach about forgiveness to people who are sitting in this room who I know have deep open wounds that have been inflicted on them. Who are sitting here maybe saying, wait, you're telling me that forgiveness of, of, of other people is non-negotiable in the gospel? First of all, I hate that. And second of all, I don't even know where to start. Jesus doesn't teach us to forgive lightheartedly either. 
He knows that you can't turn on forgiveness like that. Psalm 103, 14 says that he is like a compassionate father. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are but dust. He knows your weakness. He knows that we are weak, that we can't just turn it on. And so forgiveness takes time. And this prayer is not a prayer of, I'm going to pray this and then I'm going to be forgiven and then I'll be done and it's fine. It's not, a, it's not a call to sweep things under the rug, especially big, hard things in the past by family members and friends and betrayal. And those are not things to sweep. That's not what he's calling us to. What he is calling us to, and I said earlier, you know, true repentance breeds forgiveness. Maybe it's actually true repentance breeds a willingness to work towards forgiveness. And that willingness comes through as you are willing to go to God in prayer and say, please help me to learn to forgive this person. And so that's my question for, that's my second question for you. The first was, right, what do you need to begin taking to God in confession so that your heart stays soft and tender and sensitive to him? But the second question is, who, where is there unforgiveness in your heart? Because that is also cutting you off from God. And it's stopping you from seeing his name hallowed and seeing his kingdom come and his will be done. And if those are our highest priorities, we have to figure out how to deal with unforgiveness in our hearts. And so who is that person? Maybe there's a name that you have in mind right now, but let me encourage you to begin to work towards that. Jesus said that if you, have, if you are at the altar worshiping and you find that you have unforgiveness in your heart, he says, get up and go out and deal with that and then come back and continue to worship. That's how important he says it is. I have a, a close friend, a dear friend, who um, was deeply hurt, um, wounded, ended up in burnout um, a number of years ago. And... Um, she knew that she needed to forgive because she knew that she was being imprisoned. She was a slave to this unforgiveness, the bitterness, the hate. And so she really didn't know where to start. And so she just started praying, Lord, help me to forgive. She prayed that for a long time. And eventually she got to the place where she could pray, Lord, please forgive, help me to forgive them. She, she couldn't name them yet. And then she prayed that for a while afterwards, and eventually she was able to get to the place where she could pray, Lord, forgive that person. Help me to forgive them. Help me to forgive this person and that person. And eventually she even got to the place where she could pray, Lord, please bless these people. And I think that's one of the other reasons why Jesus tells us to pray these things. To come to him honestly and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to forgive others. Because he knows that prayer has this, and I've said this before, has this mysterious way of turning our hearts and aligning our hearts with God's. It's the weirdest thing. Some of you know this. You start to pray about something and slowly your heart comes around. And then your actions follow. And you start really living for him. And so if you don't know where to start on that path of forgiveness, take that to him. Start there. Start with, Lord, I don't know how to forgive. That's what David, David is so honest in the Psalms. He brings everything, and he, he doesn't come with all the answers. He comes with all the questions. And so come to him and say, Lord, I don't know how to forgive over here. Who do you need to forgive this week? Who do you need to start working towards forgiveness? Are you willing? Just one more thought before we close. 
I know I'm really good at thinking, and I think this is true of a lot of spiritual things, but I think we think of forgiveness like a destination to be arrived at. Right? We think that it's something that you, you get there and, okay, with, I've got this issue with this person and now I've forgiven them, I'm there, done. And I don't think forgiveness works like that. Maybe, maybe it never comes back to you again, but I suspect that for most of us, th- ways where we have experienced forgiveness in places that we've really been hurt in our lives, we have to keep taking those back to God. You forgive in this season and then a couple years later, it all comes flooding back again. Somebody says something, somebody does something, something happens, and you have to take it back to him again. And so I want to encourage you, if you are, and this is for all of us, because we all have stuff. We all have junk. Keep taking that back to him. Keep taking that back to him. Don't give up on that. There is freedom in being able to forgive. He has the answers. Bring your questions. Bring your difficulties to him. Some of you know a um, publication called Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, it's actually an organization started by a man called Richard Wormbrand that seeks to bring aid and awareness to persecuted Christians around the world. And as the, when I call the band come up, I want to sh- just share something I came across this week. Uh, he has a book. It's an incredible book, kind of hard to read, called Tortured for Christ. If you haven't read it, I would recommend it just to get an understanding of what the church around the world experiences and some of the persecution there. But he wrote um, this, he shared this story and uh, he was a pastor in Romania um, and he was imprisoned there for 14 years in communist Romania. And he experienced inexplicable, in, in, uh, in, in uh, what's the word? In, indescribable, thank you. Indescribable things. He was, at this time, at the time of the story, he was in a, a, a cell that was reserved for prisoners. The whole building was reserved for prisoners who were dying. And he describes the conditions there. He says, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. And so a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. (laughs) And so it so happened that as he was in this, he was sitting in his bed and there were two other beds on either side of him. And on the one side of him was another pastor who had been beaten to within an inch of his life and was dying. And on his other side was the, the man who had beaten him, who had later been betrayed by his comrades and was now also dying. And in the middle of the night, this man woke up screaming from nightmares and said, Pastor, speaking to the man who he had beaten, Pastor, pray for me. I have committed such sins I cannot die. And the other pastor got up and stumbled across the room and knelt down next to his bed and caressed his head. And and Richard Wormbrand heard him say these words, I have forgiven you with all my heart and I love you. If I, who am only a sinner, can love and forgive you, more so can Jesus, who is the Son of God and who is love incarnate, return to him. He longs for you so much more than you long for him. He wishes to forgive you much more than you wish to be forgiven. Just repent. And there, in that prison cell, the communist began to confess his tortures and his murders. And finally, he knew peace, and they prayed together, and they embraced, and they both returned to their beds And later that night, they both died. But that pastor had learned the secret. 
Somehow, if he can, he learned that, how could I not forgive? I'm imperfect and I can forgive and Jesus can forgive you. He went back to the cross. And that's the call this morning. Return to him. Return to him. If you need to come back with a heart of repentance, if you need, if you have unforgiveness over here in your life, return to him. He has the answers. And so let's stand. We're going to close in song and we're going to consider what he has done at the cross and the debt that we have been forgiven.